When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. On this episode of Film Spotting SVU, well, actually, hold on a sec. Matt, how do you spell your full name? M A T T H E W S I N G. Wait, why do you want to know? No, no, no reason. You know, just like to know this kind of thing. Hey, that's a, that's a cool old notebook. Where did you get that thing? Well, this, uh, you know, I found it when I was eating outside in a thunderstorm and it fell from the sky. And on a totally unrelated topic on this episode of SVU, we are reviewing Adam Wingard and Netflix's new adaptation of the popular Japanese franchise, Death Note. Later in this episode, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Death Note, we're doing anime, a topic we're admittedly not experts uh, speak on. Speak for yourself. Okay. Yeah. One of well. us is not an expert on. <laughs> One of us is probably is definitely not an expert on either. Okay. But has a has a has a high school, you know, experience of watching anime. Okay. Well then you're a perhaps a lapsed expert. Let's, lapsed how's anime. How's that sound? A lapsed anime fan. So if we say something wrong, we leave out your favorite, you know, please do not write our names down in any evil notebooks you might have lying around. S I N G E R. On the plus side, this is an audio podcast so they can't see our faces. Yes, correct. Mm. Mm, no one Google image search us, please. Anyway, we've got uh, no opening break on this show, so let's get right into our main review. Hello, Light. Oh, um, you're the guy. You're L. Yeah, well, that's not my real name, but I'm sure you're painfully aware of that. What are you doing here? Following the lead. You? Um, I was just, I'm leaving. I wonder if it was a difficult decision. If w- what was a difficult decision? Sparing your father's life. I'm sorry, what are you talking about? I mean, you must have known it would implicate you, yet you couldn't bring yourself to do it. I'll admit, I, I always wondered if you had a line. I guess it fortunate for us, the line you finally decided to draw a point so clearly in your direction. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let listeners choose our main review by voting in a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. On our latest episode, we gave you the following options. Death Note, the American adaptation of the Japanese manga, anime, and live-action film series created by Tsugumi Oba and Takeshi Obata. 
There was After the Storm, the latest film from Japanese auteur Hirokazu Koreeda, and the recent can-vetted indie horror film The Transfiguration. And... Probably not too surprisingly, Death Note was the winner. It took home the poll with about 48% of the vote. This English-language version of Death Note is directed by Adam Wingard, who, until he ran afoul of the Blair Witch last year, was one of the most acclaimed indie horror directors alive. Previously, when he was making stuff like Your Next and The Guest, he seemed to be taking old genre tropes and reinventing them. These days, he seems to be taking old genre movies and just remaking them. He's followed up his Blair Witch with Death Note, which has been made several times in several different formats in Japanese already, Wingard's version transposes the events to Seattle, where high school student Light Turner, played by Nat Wolf, comes into possession of a magic notebook called the Death Note, which gives him the power to kill anyone whose name he writes in the book with a few caveats and a bunch of rules thrown into the mix. Light's mom was killed and the murderer got away with it, so Light sets out to use the Death Note to change the world. Killing the people he deems guilty of offenses who have escaped justice. He is coaxed on by his girlfriend Mia, played by Margaret Qualley, and Ryuk, a death god voiced by Willem Dafoe. And he's opposed by an eccentric masked detective known only as L, played by Atlanta and Get Out's Lakeith Stanfield. Allison. Yes. Before anyone had seen a frame of Death Note, there was controversy over its casting, something we can discuss later. But I want to talk about what is on the screen first. There is a lot of material in Death Note. I'm talking about the original creation here, not the book that we see Nat Wolf running around with in the film. And the Japanese live-action adaptation of this story was actually two films long, and each one ran over two hours Meanwhile, Adam Wingard's Death Note is one film, and it's just one hour and 40 minutes. So I want to start there. Putting aside everything else, do you think he effectively turned this sprawling saga into a single film? No. No, absolutely not. I I do not hate this movie. It's been interesting to watch Adam Wingard on Twitter uh, trying to deal with the ire of many enraged uh, anime fans. Okay. But I will say that uh, the pacing of this movie and the amount of ground it tries to cover is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It, it introduces its premise, and then before there's even much time to let that sink in, the idea that the main character has been randomly gifted with the power to kill anyone. anyone Literally dictate, anyone. To not just kill them, but dictate the means of their death. Yes. To be like decapitation or chokes on a, you know... Anything. Ch- Literally chokes anything. Chokes on gum. And, uh, and they die. As long as he knows their name and has seen their face. Yes. Um, you know, it, it just sets that up and then it just takes off at a sprint. Yeah. There is, uh, you know, one of the other main characters uh, Mia, played by Margaret, uh, Margaret Qualley, is a uh, develops a relationship with him, and their relationship takes place like over a montage. Like yep. it is built out over a montage, mm-hmm. and then when the other main character arrives, uh, you know, Lakeith Stanfield's character, L, this mysterious detective, and uh, that's a relationship, this kind of duel between them that fills up most of the original source material. It's like he's introduced and everything gets to the end game almost immediately because that's just, there's no room. It is an incredibly crowded movie that is, has like 
very, I think, potentially interesting characters that do not have a lot of time to be built out and that do not have a lot of time to develop relationships with one another. And I think that that is the thing you really feel in watching this movie is that it feels like it's almost like someone summarizing Death Note, the series for you. Like, you know, there's so there is enough montages that it's almost like you're not watching the series. You're getting someone's summary. No, uh, I have written down here. It's not Death Note. It's Death Cliff Notes. I yes. mean, that's what it feels like. We're on basically the same page of the of the uh, evil notebook here. I was uh, I was pretty disappointed by this. I mean, the whole controversy. It, this movie is like beneath controversy. It's just not even good to to sort of be outraged by. It's just it's just bad. And I completely agree that the main issue is that it this it, it there there is a. There's some interesting plot in this story, but the problem is to make the plot work, you need you need this sort of cat and mouse game that develops between the two characters to be about characters and morality and their feelings about what's happening. And this movie is all plot and it has been stripped bare of anything interesting about the characters. Like literally the movie opens with a montage one of as you pointed out one of many montages i don't think there's been a movie in history with more montages than this except for rocky four which is like 40 percent montage yeah there's good ones in there too absolutely but but there that's a, that's the last movie i saw where i was like there are so many montages that i i can't even care about what's happening literally the movie opens with a montage of like this seattle high school and liter- the book the death note falls out of the sky next to light turner we see the title card, and like that's it. There's no explanation of who he is, who he was before the Death Note. You know, we get a little bit about his backstory in a, a little bit of dialogue with his father, the stuff about his mom and how she was killed and the guy got away with it, but not nearly enough to make him an interesting character and to make his moral choices interesting. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, th- there is some interesting plot in this story, theoretically, but again, to really make you care about this cat and mouse game, you have to sort of be invested in both sides of it. You have to care about Light, and you have to care about L. And I really, I mean, this version of the story, and I've seen the live-action Japanese films, and I, I you know, they're, they're melodramatic, they're a little silly at times, but they're also, like, fun, they're juicy, they're interesting to, like, think about and and those movies had enough time to really let you dive into the characters and and their their emotional states and why they're doing this and there's just none of that here yeah i think that one of the big problems in in the movie when you're watching it is that by the time l arrives who is supposed to be one of the two main characters yes it almost feels like there's no room for him in the movie. No, in not In particular, at all. because the character of Mia, who's he's kind of like a beefed up uh, version of a of a kind of smaller character in the source material, uh, she takes some of that some of that part. You know, like she becomes, she takes some of the spotlight as well, while also not really getting developed. No, it feels I don't. Almost think... like one or the other of them should be gone. Yeah, yeah, and saved for a later movie yes. or something. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that the Mia character, we never like see her home life. We yes. have no concept of who she is. Right. What her background is. Why she she's is... so deeply not only like interested in killing people using the death, but but like sexually aroused by it, which right. is a weird thing to just she's kind of to drop plunk in into the movie with uh-huh. no motivation explanation or even like considering it 
yeah. at all. Well, it, the movie is caught in this very awkward place. And I think that you see this when you listen to the ways in which this project has been in development for a long time, uh, by the way, for like long enough that it's passed through so many people's hands, including, you know, who was attached to potentially direct it at one point? I don't. Gus Van Sant. Wow. Think about that. I actually, am thinking like, about yeah, it. I feel like you can kind of see, I don't know if there's any lingering actual like input that he put in it, but there is something about like the setup of the movie, the start of it, and like the Seattle setting that I'm like, I could actually see yeah. a weird Gus Van Sant adaptation of this that would be very, very different. Not that, that it ever made it that far. But so by the time Adam Wingard got attached, it had been bumping around for, I think, it, you know, it, it's been like years, almost 10 years. Uh, and I think that you see in like looking at the ways the producers talk about this movie and looking at the way Adam Wingard has, it's not entirely his movie and the producers clearly also wanted to serve the anime fan base. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think that the best parts of this movie are the ones that kind of depart from, from trying too hard to serve an anime series or that is, or manga series that is way longer and way more involved right. than can actually fit in this yeah. movie. Yeah, it feels it often feels like it's trying to check off a lot of boxes that, like you said, like sort of fan service stuff, or just including as many characters as it can. And yeah, they just they don't all fit. I mean, the weird thing is, it's like how how many times have we talked about Netflix shows that are just so long and have so many episodes, and you're like, I can't believe that there we need did we really need thirteen hour long episodes of this show? And here we have a, a property that actually would benefit from more screen time. Right. Like, it why be does a Netflix series? Why does least, Netflix yeah. make TV shows that are too long and movies that are too short? I don't understand it. <laughs> it make this movie longer. Like like there are in, there are like good pieces here. Like yeah. I think the cast is very qualified. I think there's good actors here. I like everyone in this movie. They just have nothing to do. They like they, they don't get to play characters. They're just you know, they're just like pawns in this game, either being played by the Willem Dafoe death god or if you want to look at it on a meta level by Adam Wingard or the producers or whoever. It's like they are just there to say the lines they need to say and set up the next plot point. There's just, you know, it's it, it, it was like frustrating to me that they cast these great people and then didn't let them like act at all. There's I know. like no act. I mean, look, Keith Stanfield's kind of doing a big broad thing. He is, but it's he's not... actually doing like a good, I would say, recreation of an anime character yes, he looks, in real life. Yes, I was going to say that too. His sort of look, his like gangly physicality, the yes. way like there's in chase scenes where he's running and he's like, his legs are so skinny. They're and so he, skinny. <laughs> he looks like an anime character. He and does. I thought he really kind of captures that energy. Yes. And just the sort of physicality, the way he's always kind of perched on yeah, things. Yeah, he like crouches on top of a chair instead of sitting in it. Yeah. And just like in general, he has the kind of... Like, he really, he leans into playing this kind of ridiculous character yes. without intense, winking at very all. Very emotional. Like, yes. He's always crying or, or you know, munching and on candy, candy and all yeah. these things. And he really does seem like an anime character come to light. But as you noted, like, not all the movie feels that way. And in some ways, he kind of clashes with other elements he of the movie. clashes with light. I mean, I think yeah. one of the, you know, like, we can talk about the, the controversy in a second, but I, one of the things with light and one of the choices that I thought was really potentially intriguing 
is that they they make him look like like a school shooter. Like when he's mm. introduced, he's got like, you know, the the black t shirt, the like flop of like self bleached hair, and he's got the worst hair I've yes, ever seen. Yes, in a movie. and he's sitting outside on the benches, you know, outside of the school with headphones on, <laughs> and there's everything about him that is kind of intended, I think, very deliberately to evoke like this particular type of sure. disaffected young white man. Yes. And, uh, I, you know, I was like, well, that's, that's not in the original source material, but I'm really uh, like that. I really want to see that explored. Right. Especially since this character is a mass killer. He's yeah. just a mass killer who doesn't use a gun. He uses a notebook. Right. Uh, and I mean, I do feel like the heart of this story is about um, this young, smart, untested teenager being given near godlike powers, right? And and then being like, do what you want. Like you think you know how to fix the world? I wrote this, it's I, I wrote in my review that in some ways Ryuk is like a troll who gives like a self-righteous Redditor <laughs> huge power. <laughs> And I got a, a not all Redditors email mm. after that. But mm. I, that is how it feels, I, you know? The like, problem is, though, what, the movie you're describing is so much more interesting than the movie we well, got. This is all it. theoretical. Like it all, it's all, like, maybe potentially there in the intro, and then it dumps up immediately. Completely forgotten. And also, like, it softens light. I don't know why, mm. but, like, he is the one who's always, like... I don't know if we should do this. And like, yes. And I'm just like, in the very least, he should be a sociopath. Right. Like, that if you're going to make something that's going to be hampered by needing to be faithful to the source material, don't make that your one big change. Yeah. It's that he's going to be a nicer guy. Right. They seem to sort of offload that character's sort of darker side to the Mia character, the sort of sidekick or sort of co-collaborator co-conspirator in this version and you're right softening that character makes him less interesting it's like what's the point what is the point yeah you know i i I mean there is this like be careful what you wish for like uh potential to the story but it never really gets explored no well because nothing gets explored explored. all that happens is just plot 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 Get the death note. Do the thing. Do this next thing. And here comes L. And then the, the, it's just like it is just it. It really. I mean, death's cliff's notes is the only is like the perfect way that I could think of to describe it because it just it feels so so incomplete. It does. And I you know like I said I I I like the people in this and Adam Wingard has made some great movies. Maybe not the last year or two. Right. But I mean there are flashes of style in this. Sure. Even if they're I mean it is that opening montage with Seattle is like it it. it it brings together a mood mm-hmm. that you can really the music you know, choices. I thought were kind of good. Yeah, the throughout. music choices are. There's like a lot of kind of of uh, ironic ish, mm-hmm. but like kind of ironicist grand- grandeur to these choices. Yep. Berlin's "Take My Breath Away." Yep. Uh, love theme from Top Gun mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, gets repurposed here. Air Supply gets repurposed to some very good effect. Yeah, I thought the music was pretty clever. But yeah, it doesn't. It's it's a really disappointing film, and I think you know it's it's particularly disappointing given how like how difficult adapting anime related titles or manga has been mm-hmm. so far. Yeah, like it's just created a lot of disasters, and this seemed like the project that had the potential to do something right. Adam Wingard is a good director. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 
three of the of the producers are Asian American uh, producers. Masioka, who appears in the film briefly, Roy Lee, who's kind of the king of importing Asian properties to be remade for better or for worse, often worse. But he's the producer of The Grudge and The Ring. Uh, you know, his entire career has been based on on American remakes mm-hmm. of of Asian properties. But it, this, there's nothing in this that really makes sense. No. It is neither a, fa- a film for fans nor one that stands by itself. Yeah, I, t- I, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I could see fans being upset with a lot of the choices that they made, and I'm, they were before the a lot of them were upset before the movie even came out. But it's not like the movie when you see it, you go, oh, I get it, I get why they made these choices. This works on its own. You know, this stands alone as its own thing. The Japanese Death Note was great, and this American ne- Death Note is great. That's not what happened. It's just it's it is. It's in this weird sort of. I don't know, mid, mid, mid-level, mid mid-range, gray area between the two where it's just like, this really does serve no one. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do, I will say this, though. Uh, I do feel really uncomfortable when I hear people describe it as whitewashed. Uh, I feel uncomfortable because it's not doing the same thing as Ghost in the Shell. You know, mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell was set in Japan. Right. And used, and had a general Japanese cultural setting right like trappings cultural trappings and yet somehow the main characters were all not Japanese uh they were mostly white I mean Scarlett Johansson's character in that movie is a Japanese woman's brain in a white woman's spoiler body. spoiler alert there yeah, I sorry to call that a spoiler it's uh I mean it's like a giant metaphor for whitewashing like yes. in the central like the movie's central conceit is this mm-hmm. metaphor uh and I just don't I think that Death Note is an adaptation. Right. I mean, and in ways it's best when it is trying to be more of an adaptation and like actually kind of like running with cultural specific, like American cultural specific choices. Uh, And I also like, as someone who's of mixed Asian descent myself, I flinch every time I see the movie described as a whole as whitewashed because Keith Stanfield, like Keith Stanfield is one of the main three people. Yep. And if you're going to have to, you shouldn't have to commit an act of erasure to protest erasure. <laughs> right. You know, I do think that there's a really complicated conversation that's constantly evolving. But I this feels to me like a not great adaptation, but an adaptation in the standard Hollywood sense in which Hollywood gobbles up international inte- intellectual property and then barfs it up, uh, you know, in some American-ish remake. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I agree with everything you said. I mean... Uh, it, it does seem a little unfair to me to loop this in with Ghost in the Shell and what that movie did. And like you said, there's a this is a good cast, and it's not just a bunch of white people in this movie. Yeah, well, and I think it's also I I will say like this also like you know uh, the conversations that we have about Asianness and Asian Americanness mm-hmm. are as it, are as I've said complicated, and I understand how there's particular sting in the way this movie like most Hollywood movies fails to cast Asian Americans in major roles. I think it has a very, unfortunately that's an American adaptation. It it handles all too well. (laughs) Right. Uh, You know, but I, I am, I I am leery of the idea in which we use Asian-ness and Asian American-ness interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Like, as you've pointed out, there are existing Japanese live action Death Note movies. Yes. If you want to see a Death Note movie with an entirely Japanese cast, you can do that. This is true. Uh, Death Note was never an Asian American property. 
Uh, and I think that it's important to realize that distinction because, uh, you know, Death Note is culturally specific. It's Japanese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think that to kind of draw a line directly to that reflecting Asian American experiences, which are like very different and broader and also certainly not even all Japanese American, it's an important distinction to make. I think that is an important distinction to make. And I also just think this movie is just not very good. I think it. Uh, I think there's a more fundamental. There's a very yes. fundamental problem here. Absolutely, I know. And that's the other thing. I think like when when these battles get fought, you're also just like, I'm glad. I guess that we're continuing to talk about this and put pressure on. Sure. This. And but like, God, it like is exhausting to fight so much over a movie that's just so kind of not worth <laughs> the time as this one. Mm. Yeah. Well. It's a. I feel like it's a. It's a missed opportunity on a lot of levels. Yes, and that's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. I will say, I would recommend, and I'm sure you would echo me in this. Uh, You're next, and the guest, both yes. directed by Adam Wingard, are really good times. And they I, are smart and so entertaining. And I would say, if you sort of like the premise of this, if you, if you thought this film was interesting, but didn't think that it really exploited the premise to its full potential, I would say seek out those Japanese movies. The first one is just called Death Note, and the sequel is Death Note 2, The Last Name. I think they, it looks like after the fact they made, like many years later they made more films, which I haven't seen, but I saw yeah. the first two, and they're good. Like, they're they're certainly better than this, and they're more interesting and more fun, and uh, I would say, you know, if it sound, if, the, if you watched this movie and thought it, it sort of missed the boat, or you just think the premise sounds interesting and haven't watched it yet, maybe just go watch those movies. Yeah, or watch the anime series. I've made it not quite halfway through the anime series, but it is on Netflix, it's on Hulu, and I think it's on Tubi TV as well. So you have plenty of venues to watch it if you would like to. Um, so yeah, you know, plenty of alternatives if, if, if this one is really not catching your fancy. This Death Note is available on Netflix. So we're going to talk, I I would call this like some anime basics, really. By no means is this an in-depth conversation about anime. Uh, We just wanted to throw out some titles in case you uh, maybe don't know where to start. Um, You know, uh, all we're talking is movies here also. It's not entirely fair to try and separate out movies from television series Mm -hmm. or from the kind of miniseries, OAVs that exists like oftentimes a franchise will have some of each yes but we focus specifically on films for this mm-hmm. um and films have actually like managed to break through a bit uh in film festivals they've managed to kind of as much as anime has like long had a kind of passionate niche fan base uh, it's it's taken a long time to break into the mainstream and uh, beyond also like children's dubbed series. Uh, and I think that, that it's been kind of, uh, it's been neat to see on occasion uh, anime films manage to make their way into film festivals, including Cannes, including the New York Film Festival yep. over the years. One of my picks is, a, is an anime film I saw at a film festival. Uh, I did want to also mention, we talked a little bit about Ghost in the Shell, the live-action film in the last segment, but the original Ghost in the Shell anime film is available on Hulu. You, I think, recommended it previously on a on an episode about robot movies. Yes. So I couldn't talk about... I, I was originally going to do that one, and then I looked it up, and 
You had stolen my thunder, Stolen Allison. my thunder, yeah. Well, and uh, I also just wanted to mention, neither of us is recommending it, but Akira, the sort of, you know, one of the seminal anime films, yes, is also the, on Hulu. Yes. Hulu actually has a bunch of good anime on yeah. there. So. Yeah, they have, like, especially in the in the like movies kind of they have like a whole section of anime anime movies i did also want to give a shout out to a few other films like uh not all of these are available for streaming some of them are not available digitally at all unfortunately but hiroyuki uh yamaga's wings of oniamis which is available nowhere as far as i can find at least digitally but like was always i think considered a classic and doesn't get talked about as much anymore uh, or Barefoot Gen uh, is also not available digitally. Rintaro's Metropolis is also not ve- available digitally right now, though it occasionally flickers up onto various streaming sites. And same with Memories, the anthology film, which has one in particular excellent segment. Um, and we also, we made the rule for ourselves, no Miyazaki, uh, yes. just because it's its like own thing. Miyazaki's also like, you don't need to be told to watch Miyazaki movies. Sure, um, They are great. But I did want to give also... A shout out to Isao Takahata, uh, who is uh, Miyazaki's co-founder uh, in Studio Ghibli, and who has made many, many great films that are not often as well known as Miyazaki's. Uh, in particular, I think he did Grave of the Fireflies, which is available for rent, and it's another of those kind of seminal anime films. Mm-hmm. It's a huge downer, <laughs> but uh, is is a classic. So... All so right. with all of that out yeah. of the way, do you want to you want to go first here with your pick? I will go first. Okay, I ended up picking two films. One film that I would say is like sweet and and really delightful and and kind of good, almost like family friendly. And the other one is not sweet and definitely not family friendly. So why don't I start with that one? Because okay. I know we also we picked we both ended up picking films from the same director, so yes. we can get to those later. Okay. So my first pick is a movie that, as I mentioned, is not right for the whole family. In fact, I would say it, it features qualities that uh, anime at certain points has been stereotyped for uh, huh. by people with only a glancing knowledge who are looking at it from the outside. That film would be Ninja Scroll, and it is available on Hulu. It is a super violent a uh, film that features sexualized violence that is shamelessly leered at, uh, and it's about ninjas fighting each other. Um, it is also impossibly cool <laughs> in its depiction of an incredibly skilled mercenary named Jubei who gets pulled into an Edo-era conspiracy involving the eight devils of Kimon, a collection of eight fighters with supernatural skills. Matt, there is a gigantic dude who can turn his skin to stone Uh and who wields a giant double-blade sword he hurls spinning through the air and then catches. Mm. There is a woman whose body is covered with snake tattoos that can come to life and hypnotize someone. Uh And she can also summon snakes. She can release one from a a very intimate part of her body. (laughs) Please stop. And shed her skin to escape. Sure. Like a a snake. Yep. There's a woman whose body is poisonous. Mm -hmm. There's a man who electrocutes or strangles people with magical filament threads. As you do. And there's the main baddie, um, a guy who has mastered control of his body so completely Mm -hmm. that he can reattach severed limbs (laughs) and, in fact, a severed head. He is effectively immortal. I mean, he that is would be a, useful. Yeah, he's a terrible manager, though, um, <laughs> given that he's in a bisexual polyamorous love triangle with two of the other devils who are both terribly jealous of each other and end up sabotaging things. Um, basically, this film is a mass of sometimes nightmarish violence, 
barely comprehensible intrigue, dubious to say the least, sexual politics, some unexpectedly open-minded sexuality, and incredible animated action sequences. They really are. Like, the whole movie is basically just, like, fighting. One type of extremely imaginative fighting after another. Um, The Wachowskis have cited this film as a Matrix influence. Though, uh, I will say there is another film that is... uh, more shocking in terms of how it lifts from this movie. In fact, because <laughs> I, I had seen this movie, um, which is from 1993, I had owned it on VHS. Oh, nice. Uh, yes. So it, it was not until I saw this movie in 2005, I was shocked that, uh, that it was so like brazen, brazen about stealing. And that is Electra, the oh. Rob Bowman movie starring Jennifer Garner Whoa. as the assassin Electra. The movie just like uh, scoops like whole portions, I, I would say, uh, whole action sequences directly from, from Ninja Scroll. It, it's actually re- it's kind of funny to watch them together because it's so directly lifts, including it has like a tattoo guy. It has a stone guy. What about the polyamorous stuff? Is that in Electra? I don't remember. No, I don't know if there's a ton of sexiness in Electra, but so they left out the best part. They left out the most interesting part. I know. <laughs> I know. But I will say like Ninja Scroll is, uh, is like a really good time <laughs> despite, uh, despite all of its uh, NC-17-ness, uh, or at least R-ratedness. Um, and I think as a movie that was kind of a standard of, just because of the way it was, it, like how widely it was imported, it was like a gateway film for a lot of people for anime. And I think uh, that despite that, uh, because that's not, it doesn't, that's not always indicative of quality, uh, it is actually visually like fascinating it is the way it's animated and the way it stages action sequences is really kind of beautiful and exciting so that is ninja scroll and it is on hulu all right that's a that's a great pick that's that i have to admit i have not seen but you you've definitely intrigued me (laughs) with these various demons and their sexual proclivities Uh, my first pick i decided i wanted to watch a movie by one of the Another one of the sort of most respected directors of anime, um, but someone who I was not very familiar with. In fact, I, again, I, I hadn't seen any of his work, and that was uh, the late Satoshi Kon. Uh, I'm pretty sure Allison has recommended movies uh, of his before. I definitely love Paprika. Yeah, that's the one that I was pretty sure that you had talked about on our show. So I picked a, um, one that I don't think has ever come up here. And was available. It's available right now on 2B TV. And that is Millennium Actress from 2001. And when when we decided on the topic of anime, Allison was like, let's do kind of like Anime 101. And what I found when I watched this film was I, I kind of had stumbled into like Anime like 506. Like it feels <laughs> a little bit like a graduate level course in some ways. It's not a stereotypical story or, you know, it's it's not hyper-violent and, you know, vaguely sure, sexual. I don't, I don't and, know that, like, most anime is. I think that just was informed the type of anime that sometimes yeah, got imported. Perhaps. Perhaps you're right. But I did not feel watching it that I was smart enough or well-versed enough in Japanese history and pop culture to fully appreciate the film, but I I loved watching it. I thought it was so smart and beautiful. It's sort of like a Citizen Kane that's set in the film world. This old Japanese studio is being torn down, and so a documentary film crew goes to meet the studio's greatest star, this 
older woman who is retired, living almost like a recluse. And when the crew arrives, they give her this mysterious key, and that leads to the actress narrating her life story and and slowly drawing out what this key means to her. But the story also blends together with these with the films that the actress was in. And then the documentarian and his cameraman, who are recording the interview with the actress, they start to appear in and even interact with these flashbacks. So you have this fascinating mixture of fantasy and history and memory and the way the film slips between those modes with different uses of color and lighting is incredible and the way that the movie speaks to the power of film and the power of stardom and fandom because this documentarian is almost like a crazy fan of the actress that he's interviewing and all of these different layers is Really, I thought, fantastic. Like I said, I didn't feel like I fully got this movie, um, but it made me want to, like, read, I don't know, like, annotations to explain all the different elements because I was just so sort of wrapped up in this world that it transported me to. And um, I recently went to uh, Pixar uh, for the first time, the animation studio. And, and while I was there, it was for like a preview of Cars 3. And they also showed us the short film that played before uh, Cars 3, which was Lou. Did you see Lou, Allison? I think I did see Lou. Uh, the, yes, I And the director did. of Lou gave us this sort of PowerPoint presentation about the whole process of making the film. And one of the things that he did was in the very beginning, he talked about sort of like Pixar's rules of making something. And one of their core rules of every Pixar production is that it has to be something that can only be a story that can only be told in animation. And at first glance, I was sort of as as Millennium Actress began. I was like, I'm not. I, I, I don't know. It's interesting because it almost feels like it it violates that rule. Not that that a, an anime film has to follow Pixar's rules, but it was interesting because as the the film unfolds, you go, Oh, I understand now that this because of the blending of all these different things, like it is taking full advantage of the animated form to transport you in time and through history and fantasy and to recreate these period Japanese films, all these different things. You, It's like actually, in a, surprisingly, at after my initial reactions, like this is almost like the perfect example of the kind of thing that Pixar is talking about. So I, I, I really, I enjoyed this and I regret sort of how ignorant I am of Satoshi Kon's sort of Uvra and I'm going to have to seek out some of his other films. I know you're a huge Paprika fan. I am. I'm a big Satoshi Kon fan in general. Yeah. I just I, he he was like such. I, I think I, I he I think is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, directors of anime. But he also was really interested in exploring levels of reality like that. Those sure. kind of fantasy, like uh, Perfect Blue, which is this kind of Hitchcockian story about this uh, former pop idol who's trying to switch to being an actress and kind of a serious actress and then has a stalker maybe. It just like, it slips into layers of fantasy. And then Paprika is like the ultimate one that just like, in which dream life and fantasy and, and the real life start to kind of like merge together. And there's just this wild imagination, visual imagination to it. Yeah. There, unfortunately a lot of them are only available for rent, but right. I, I love them. I think he's, he's pretty fantastic. Well, millennium actress is not just available for rent. You can watch it right now on 2 TV. All right. Well, my second pick is one that is only available for rent right now. Um, you know, I mentioned that, 
Ninja Scroll is is part of this kind of very grown up and uh, kind of category of adult animation, and I think that's often like uh, you know when when anime was emerging into the American public consciousness, that was part of the argument that had to be made was the one that has to be made about all animation that it can be for grown ups that right. it's not just the perception that it's for children. Uh, that said, my second pick, uh, the girl who leapt through time is maybe it's a it's a teen drama really it's actually an example of a subgenre that i guess i'm really fond of it would be the the kind of teen drama with incidental supernatural or sci-fi touches <laughs> um i would also group makoto shinkai's your name uh which came out earlier this year and was a huge hit in japan it's available for rent now i would say that's also similar and i i adored your name the girl who leapt through time is directed by mamoru hosada uh he's made several films that have occupied a similar intersection between kind of nuanced, smart high school saga and then genre fare like Summer Wars, uh, which is about a computer geek's crush on this older classmate from a sprawling, prominent family, but is also about this virtual world that gets hacked by an artificial intelligence program that tries to uh, like bring down a satellite or uh, Wolf Children, which is about two half-werewolf siblings trying to figure out where they fit into a world of humans and animals. Uh, and then, I, I, you know, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, uh, which was his first non-TV series-related film in 2006, it, it manages to be very grounded in the story of this tomboyish teenage girl named Makoto, uh, who's forever running late and is resistant to planning for the future and is fond mostly of hanging out with her two best friends, these fellow baseball loving guys, Chiaki and Kosuke. Um, and then after a mishap in school, she discovers she has acquired the ability to leap through time. Like literally she takes a running leap and then can go back uh, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days usually arriving in this kind of undignified but impressively athletic like role <laughs> crashing into things. Um, it's this immensely powerful ability that she immediately starts abusing uh, in just like totally ridiculous petty ways. She uses it to extend uh, a karaoke session for hours. She keeps leaping back to the beginning so she can sing more songs. See, now this is you a kind relate, of time travel right? I could really you get could behind. Relate. Yeah. Um, she uses it to do better on a surprise test a uh, surprise quiz uh and then central to the developing plot she uses it to avoid a confession of love from chiaki uh who's had an obvious crush on her that uh, she's kind of been avoiding acknowledging because she's an avoidant girl in general so there's a sequence in which he uh gives her a ride home and each time he keeps kind of like asking her out and she tries to figure out ways to sabotage the conversation or direct it in other ways. So she keeps leaping back and can't seem to stop the conversation from going to this thing that she doesn't know how to answer. So it's both like very kind of sweetly awkward in this very recognizable teenage way, but also it's sci-fi. Um, the time leaping in this story is done exists almost entirely in service to this character study of a young woman being forced to um, come to terms with how she's been drifting through life without thinking about consequences. Um, and because of that, I will say uh, the ending feels less than smooth. Uh, that's the point at which the timely being finally kind of has to be brought to the forefront and dealt with. Um, but it is such a beautiful movie. It is sunny and bright uh, it takes these like pauses in which just like it, you admire the day 
or kind of the way people in the high school are hanging out on the lawn. The it is it's so atmospheric in this feeling of like a sunny summer day. Um, and the characters are done kind of very deliberately. They're not intensely detailed, uh, but they're really expressive, particularly in the way they move and they slouch. Uh, they are teenagers, you know, so they're this combination of awkward and athletic and they, um, so much is expressed in terms of like their hopefulness towards other characters or how they're totally crushed by them in their posture. Uh, and that scene on the river, the scene with the bikes where, uh, where she's getting a ride and trying to avoid this conversation is in particular beautiful. It's so beautiful because it's against this shimmering river as the sun is setting. It's a really sweet and wistful movie. And it doesn't end on a note you might expect. And I think that it, it's, it's really kind of well done and has a thread of melancholy that I appreciated. Um, it's really nice. I, I liked it a lot. The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, available for rent. All right. That's another one I haven't seen. But we, you know, again, we sort of, uh, we, we didn't plan it this way. And be, but I've, I've also got a movie by the same director, Mamoru Hosoda. So I, I guess if there's one takeaway from this episode, it, uh, it's that if you haven't seen one of uh, his films, this is, you need to pay attention, you know? Um, and I've been hearing about, uh, his filmography, and I, I haven't seen The Girl Who Left Through Time. It sounds wonderful. I've been hearing a lot about Wolf Children and how good that is. Um, the movie of, of his that I saw and really affected me deeply, I mean, more than I think any other anime I've ever seen, is his most recent film, 2015's The Boy and the Beast, which is available for rent. This was the movie I saw at a film festival. I saw it at Fantastic Fest in 2015. And when I saw it, it was about two months before my daughter was born. And it was one of the very first movies I saw that really hit me hard on an emotional level because of the story, which was about – it's about fathers and their and their children. Uh, the boy of the title is named Ren. As the film begins, he's orphaned after his mom dies. And he winds up in this beast kingdom, this like fantasy realm, where he becomes kind of the ward of this unruly beast – uh, named Kumatetsu, who is one of uh, the creatures vying for control of this magical place. And at first they don't get along, but then they warm to each other. And then several years passed, and then Ren, now sort of older, kind of, I don't know, a teenager, I guess, uh, returns to the human world, our world, finds his biological father, and then is torn between the two worlds um, and trying to decide where he belongs and without spoiling what happens in this film, have you seen it, Allison? I have not seen this one. I will just say, without spoiling anything, that I basically cried <laughs> kind of nonstop through like the last 20 minutes of the movie. I, was, I saw it at Fantastic Fest, which is like the Alamo Draft House's genre film festival. And I was glad I was at the Draft House because I had napkins in front of me. And I was just sitting there like, like dabbing my eyes. Um, it got to me. It got to me. I, it was it was it was it was a it was, a, it was an intense experience. The animation is absolutely beautiful, um, particularly at the end, which is both incredibly thrilling and really kind of jaw droppingly gorgeous. There are these very impressive, like monsters that threaten the heroes, and the character design, the world building throughout is just very imaginative and creative and, and wonderful and beautiful. And uh, there is this line that I wrote down from the movie that I remembered. 
that really stuck out to me when the characters, they're sort of on this quest for knowledge, and someone says, an illusion sometimes has more truth than truth itself. And I feel like that very nicely sums up perhaps movies in general, but I think this movie in particular, and it is this very emotional story about what parents and, you know, can be biological, can be sort of adopted parents teach their children, but also what children teach their parents right back, which I think is what makes it particularly moving and something that I have definitely found to be absolutely true in my experience in um, in life so far. So uh, I have not watched it again since then. I don't know if I could emotionally handle watching it again, <laughs> but I would encourage people to take the plunge at least once. And I would uh, warn people if you are a, a mush pot and you have children, or even if you don't have children, you should be warned because this is a really can be a very uh, emotional experience. The third act of this film, it may get a little dusty in your home theater uh, during during the final act of this of this movie. It is the Boy and the Beast, and it is available right now for rent. Well, uh, on a typical episode of uh, Film Spotting SVU, we usually take a few minutes to talk about new releases at this point. There is a problem, though, Allison. There are no movies. There's real. There's the movies. We've run out of movies. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I mean, this is normally a slow time of year, anyway. But I, yes. I have to say, these last this week and last week late late august is really giving early january a run for its, its money it's actually pretty astonishing i last this last box office weekend was the lowest box office weekend in 15 years because in part there was just nothing right and and this week there's nothing right there's the big release is tulip fever a movie that has been delayed that, so long, it's that, become a running joke. Yeah, that it may not actually exist. Yes. And and the way it keeps getting pushed back, even like days before release, they pushed it back again another week. So who knows? Maybe maybe we are just being tricked into believing that this 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 movie exists. Maybe it doesn't. Tulip fever. Tulip fever. Well, we, we haven't seen fever. it, so we can't tell you if it's it's good or not. Yeah. Or if it does indeed exist. Hopefully, by the next time we speak, there will be some uh, some new movies to talk about. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff coming in September and October. The rest of the year, there's a lot of promising titles. But uh, but you know, this is a streaming podcast. This is a great time to catch up on stuff on streaming. Yes, because there's very few reasons to go to the movie theater unless to catch up on stuff if you missed it over the summer. Yeah, it's it's. It's not great. Even for uh, even for indies, it's a fairly quiet time right now. Yeah. So I we don't even have like a, I don't know, good time. I liked good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw Terminator 2 in 3D. That was good. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it in 3D. Well, it would, hadn't been released in 3D before. Aren't they re-releasing Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Supposedly, uh, yes. Supposedly. That yes. could be a good one. Yes. <laughs> If you've never seen Close Encounters on a big big screen, screen, you might be able to. Yes. Um, Yes. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Well, let's get to let's let's wrap the show up with Behind the Eight Ball, where we recommend some new releases on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that listeners of the show have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists on Netflix. Allison, mm-hmm. you want to go first or do you yeah. want me to go? You want to go, go first. first. Okay. All right. Fine. 
Well, why don't you go first and give us three new releases? Okay, first up, new to Netflix is a TV series that I enjoyed immensely. The Good Place. Matt, have you seen The Good Place? I have not seen The Good Place. Uh, my wife is a huge Good Place yeah, fan. Yeah, it loves it's, The Good Place. It's really pretty surprisingly great. It's created by Mike Schur, so I guess it should not be surprisingly great since he created the excellent Brooklyn Nine Nine and co-created Parks and Recreation. And it is similarly kind of sweet, salty, funny, and ambitious, uh, starring Kristen Bell as a woman who dies and who wakes up in an afterlife overseen by a, an angel played by Ted Danson. Uh, the Good Place, a utopia uh, where she she realizes that she was not meant to be there. She was kind of a crummy person. And so it is a, a TV series about philosophy. Like it actually is about various philosophers and their definitions of ethical behavior and moral behavior. But it has a particularly great first season arc that ends with a a development that I did not guess was coming and really, really enjoyed. So season one of The Good Place is on Netflix. It's actually worth a binge, I will say that. New to Tubi TV is Night Riders uh, from the late, great George A. Romero. One of his rare non-horror films. Instead, he made yet another film about a traveling Renaissance Fair troupe that jousts on motorcycles. That old thing. Mm. Uh, starring Ed Harris, of course. Uh, that is streaming on Tubi TV right now. And streaming on Amazon, Morvern Collar. Uh, this is Lynn Ramsey's 2002 film starring Samantha Morton as the title character, a Scottish woman who discovers that her boyfriend has committed suicide and goes on a kind of journey of unconventional grieving. Um, I thought of this movie a lot when I was watching Baby Driver, another movie that is very dependent on headphones mm. because I think that Morven Collar is about a billion times better at staging films, uh, oh. sequences with headphones. I will say that. Shalom. That is available on Amazon. Okay, throwing down the gauntlet. How mm. about two listener recommendations? Well, first up, we've got one from Vanessa. Vanessa writes, With all the attention being given to Netflix original movies this year, I'd like to recommend one that seems to have been largely overlooked, but which I found to be one of the warmest, most fun movies I've seen this year. Deidre and Lainey rob a train. In some ways, it's the kind of family comedy rarely made anymore, while also being unlike any, fi uh, any family hijinks movie made before. Deidre and Lainey follows two adolescent sisters through a family crisis in which their mother is jailed, and they must scramble to convince social services that the family can stay together. To support themselves and their younger brother, the girls turn to, you guessed it, train robbing. Deirdre and Lainey is a movie about a dysfunctional family in which each member is fully realized with both strengths and flaws. The cliche of the welfare mom, deadbeat dad, overachieving eldest sibling and wallflower middle sibling are turned into a group of real people who irritate, disappoint, and truly love each other. It's a high school movie, a heist, and a coming-of-age story all at once, with each part done fantastically. Plus, as we all strive to encourage diversity in filmmaking, uh, DNL is a story predominantly about characters of color from director Sidney Freeland, a trans woman of Navajo descent. I hope this movie leads to many more films from her in the near future. I really can't recommend Deirdre and Lainey Robitrain enough and hope it gets more buzz. Thank you for that, Vanessa. That was actually one that I had missed. Uh, I think it was at Sundance. 
and uh, one of those ones that went directly from the festival to Netflix. Looks great. uh, Yeah, I'm adding that to my my list right now. Me too. And secondly, we have a recommendation from Paul from Adelaide, Australia, who writes, just wanted to recommend a wonderful web series that you can currently watch for free on YouTube and also watch or download for free on Vimeo. The Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo is the brainchild of comedian Brian Jordan Alvarez. The series centers around a group of friends and their complicated love lives. What sets the series apart is its really unique comedic voice with its quick razor sharp dialogue tone that can go from grounded to the absurd on a dime and the inclusiveness and progressiveness of its relationships and its treatment of its characters that runs the gamut that run the gamut of the LGBTQI spectrum. In the sea of crap that is YouTube, this series is really something special, and I suspect you'll be seeing a lot more of Alvarez in the future. His new TV series just got picked up to series, so get on this train early. Thank you for that recommendation, Paul. All right, and how about one film chosen by... My list. Uh, you gave me number 21. Mm-hmm. Number 21 is Castlevania. Ooh. Yes, this is the Netflix original animated series. Yeah. Not anime, but it actually was like very clearly designed to look like anime. Yes, Anim- anime-esque. Yes, based on the video game. Um, I added it because the script is written by Warren Ellis, who I have always liked. Uh, but it's only like four episodes so far. I think it's like four episodes and then they, uh, they ordered an eight episode second season that will eventually come. I watched the first two and it just, I don't know, it doesn't really click for me. So it just moved further and further down my, my list, but I am still interested in the writing of Warren Ellis. I think that's fair. Yeah. I didn't realize he was involved with that. I think it apparently uh, is something he was working on like 10 years ago and has tried to get made in different, uh, different forms. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that eventually got spat out. Mm. So there you go. All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Give me three, three new releases. Okay. First up on Amazon Prime is the new live action series, not the previous live action series, of The Tick. This is the new version starring Peter Serafinowicz as The Tick. We discussed the pilot for this series back on SVU episode number 120 when we did like a whole Amazon pilot season review of the three pilots that Amazon had at that time. Now there is a full season of, I believe, six episodes to enjoy. I don't think either of us loved the pilot, but there was definitely a lot of potential there. I think particularly in uh, Serafinowicz was easy for me to say. Sarah Finowitz's performance as The Tick, so I'm looking to see how this show evolves. That is The Tick on Amazon Prime. Next up on Tribeca Shortlist is Dogtooth, Yorgos Lanthimos's breakthrough film from 2009 about a very disturbed and disturbing family that keeps their children, adult children, locked away in their house. They have grown up with no knowledge of the outside world, and they have their own partly invented language and strange notions of all kinds of things, including the general nature of existence. It is a disturbing film. I'm guessing most people who are listening to this have at least heard of it, if not seen it. But if you have not seen it yet, it is now available on Tribeca Shortlist. And finally, available on Hulu is a movie I have never seen, but I've heard about so many times from my wife that uh, I had to mention it here in case there are like-minded individuals out there who might be interested in watching it. I was also curious if... Allison, if this movie, which completely evaded my knowledge until my wife tried to introduce it to me. What could this be? 
I was curious if it made an impact on your life the way it has impacted hers. It is the film Teen Witch. Yeah, that was not one of mine. Not one of your no, seminal texts? All it right. was not. Well, the plot description reads, A high school student who is a descendant of bona fide Salem witches... Okay, uses her magic to snag a football star as a boyfriend. It's one of my wife's childhood favorites. Uh, you have seen it, though. I've not seen it. You haven't seen no. it? Okay, all right. I was curious if you had, if you could, if you would, what side you would come down on in the Teen Witch <laughs> Wars. But uh, yeah, having not seen it myself, I can't say. But if you are a fan from childhood like my wife and you haven't seen it in a while and would like to re- reconnect with Teen Witch, it is available now on Hulu. All right, give me two listener recommendations. All right, our first here comes from Elliot in Salt Lake City. Elliot writes, To my delight, a masterpiece of a movie has just been added to Netflix from 2003 and director Ridley Scott. It is the hidden gem Matchstick Men, starring Nicolas Cage, Sam Rockwell, and Allison Lohman. Matchstick Men is the story of a phobic con artist whose life is interrupted when his teenage daughter shows up unexpectedly. This is peak Nicolas Cage. It's everything we love about him. He is a twitchy OCD con man who is on the cusp of another big con. And just like any con movie, there always seems to be one more surprise hidden in front of you. You can't trust anyone or anything. Although this isn't anything like Blade Runner or Gladiator, Ridley Scott does a fine job directing this lower-scale movie. The visuals are particularly impressive. I can't say enough good about this film. With Nicolas Cage, there are many tongue-in-cheek enthusiasts of his work, but forget what you think you know. He coulda, woulda, shoulda been nominated for an Oscar in this movie. So sit back and get ready to lie, cheat, steal, rinse, repeat. That is the movie's tagline. So that's Matchstick Men on Netflix. That recommendation again from Elliot in Salt Lake City. Thank you, Elliot. We also have a recommendation here from William. William writes, hi, guys. Thanks for being the best film podcasters going for the better part of a decade. Well, glad someone noticed. <laughs> I think it's I think we're not even the better part of a decade now. I think it's just a decade. It's just oh, we're so old. Yes, very <laughs> old. Uh, I've been meaning to send in a recommendation for a while now. And with the recent death of George A. Romero, this seemed like a good time to to do it. It is the 2011 horror movie. I'm guessing it's pronounced Mimesis, Night of the Living Dead. This is a hard one to recommend because the best way to watch it is to go in with as little information as possible and be charmed by the way it unfolds. It is by no means perfect. It is very low budget, but the clever way it pays homage to one of George Romero's greatest movies makes it worth a watch. This is a film that has quite literally been made and remade many times, but there's something to be said about the creative ingenuity of this little meta gem. It's available for rent on Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, and Vudu. And I had not heard of this particular remake, but I must confess, I did not take William's advice. I looked up a little bit more about the movie to see what, what it was about, and it sounds intriguing. I may take this recommendation myself and, and check it out uh, Mimesis, or I'm guessing that's how Mimesis doesn't sound right to me. So we're going to go with Mimesis, Night of the Living Dead, available for rent. Thank you, William. All right, give me one from your my list. You gave me number 11, and number 11 on my, 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 my list right now is Glow, 
the comedy series starring Alison Brie, Betty Gilpin, and Mark Maron, loosely based on the real all-women's wrestling television show from the 1980s. My wife and I are slowly working our way through this show. I'm really enjoying it, actually. It's good. We never have time to watch. We watch, like, one episode a week, basically, which is crazy. Who would watch one episode of a television show a week? Fools. That's no way to live, but uh, yeah, and actually, we've we seems like every episode we're kind of really enjoying it more and more. It starts maybe a little slowly, but um, we've really enjoyed the last couple episodes. Not that we've watched it any quicker, but strongly recommend this one. Um, we haven't watched a ton of shows together lately, but this is probably the the best one we've watched in a while. Uh, it's only that far down on my my list just because I added a bunch of stuff recently. So that's Glow, and that is the Netflix original series. It's the first season. I believe it's already been renewed for a season two. It has. So uh, watch it. Watch it now. It's I think it's 10 episodes. They're only like 30 minutes. Uh, the rare Netflix show that uh, does not outstay its welcome. Um, and yeah, check it out. Glow. Uh, we have a trio of themed options for our next episode. We already know what the the topic we'll be discussing on our next episode will be. We just don't know what the main review is. The theme will be anthology television series because all three of our options for this listener's choice, choice poll we're about to give you are anthology television series. Not just anthologies, but episodic anthology episodic. series. Because we are in a weird era of season-long anthology movies. That's true. That's a good point. That's, I guess, worth making. Episodic anthology series. Yes. Do you want to give us the first option? I do. It's one that we've actually mentioned on the show before because it was a recommendation a few episodes ago uh, from Matt in West London. Uh, So thank you for that, Matt. I actually watched some of this because of your recommendation. I liked it a lot. And when we were talking about this potential topic, it was like, well... Why don't you give me a chance to (laughs) watch the rest of it for this episode? It is Inside Number 9, season one of it, which is streaming on Hulu. This is a kind of uh, dark comedy, I suppose is fair to say, anthology series, written by Reese Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton of The League of Gentlemen. Uh, It's a BBC series. Uh, season one is only six half hour episodes. There are more than that. There are three existing seasons right now, but only season one is on Hulu. Um, so a pretty easy watch. It's there, uh, half hour episodes. Each one is a self-contained story. Each one has its own set of characters and actors. Uh, they all are tied together with the idea that number nine features into its setting. Sometimes it's uh, number nine, that's the apartment. Sometimes it's number nine, and that's the house. And I, I will say that uh, the ways in which each of these that I've seen so far uh, they kind of distinguish themselves and vary is really is really impressive. Uh, there are some that are straight up kind of horror. There are some that are kind of comedies of uh, involving just like social awkwardness. Uh, they are very uh, given, especially that they're most of them take place in an enclosed space. Uh, I think they're actually pretty visual. So uh, I, I think there's a lot to talk about there. And uh, it's got some of your some British actors uh, that because it's a, a episode anthology series, a lot of different actors cycle through. Mm-hmm. And you'll see a lot of uh, British actors you might like. So there's your first option inside number nine on Hulu. Okay, our second option is a horror anthology series. In fact, it is the Masters of Horror 
series, which ran for two seasons on Showtime in the mid-2000s and is now available, I believe, in its entirety on Tubi TV. The hook of this show was that each episode of the anthology was directed by a so-called master of horror. And over the course of the show's 26 episodes, there were installments, sometimes multiple installments, directed by uh, horror directors like Joe Dante, John Landis, Stuart Gordon, John Carpenter, and the late Toby Hooper, who just passed away. Um, There are 26 different episodes, each 60 minutes long, so we cannot watch the entire show. But the nice thing about this, or any sort of episodic anthology show, is we can kind of pick and choose what we want to talk about, or what you want to talk about. So if this wins, or if you vote for Masters of Horror in the poll, and you have specific episodes you want us to talk about... You can email us, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or send us a message on Twitter or on Facebook, and we will definitely consider that the episodes that people sort of most want to hear about. If this is the winner, we will talk about those episodes. We're not quite sure how many we'll get to. We might try to do a bunch, and if we are able to get all those done, we might try to watch a few more. We'll see how it goes. But that's option number two, Masters of Horror, and that is available on Tubi TV. Option number three is a series that is currently ongoing, though it just got renewed for a second season as well. It is Room 104, which is currently available on HBO Now, HBO Go, HBO On Demand, whatever preferred method of mainlining HBO you have. Um, This is the anthology series created by Jay and Mark Duplass uh, that... Is uh, each it's it's made up of episodes that all take place in a single room, room 104 of a hotel. Uh, so each one has its own set of characters again, uh, and they all have their own different genres. And I think what's been interesting about this for me is that it pulls together different independent film directors for a lot of these episodes. You've got Patrick Bryce, who did The Overnight and did Creep with Mark Duplass. He directed the second episode. So Young Kim, who is a uh, director of Treeless Mountain, Love Song for Ellen, she directed an episode. I think it was episode four. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you've got Megan Griffiths, Chad Hardigan, who uh, directed uh, Morris from America, directs an upcoming episode. So you have a lot of indie film talent coming in here to direct these episodes. And given that they all take place in a room, I feel like they really are dependent on someone's, you know, directorial and visual skill to to make them seem dynamic. So uh, I, I was in particular interested in this because a lot of people were talking about the fifth episode, which just aired, and saying that it was the best one so far. So uh, we'll be watching whatever, wherever this uh, season is when we record. That's how many we will watch. Um, but these are all on the shorter side as well. So I think that won't be a problem. So, uh, yeah, that's your last choice, Room 104 on various HBO platforms. All right. Which anthology series should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? It's up to you. Send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, September 4th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the show, and then join us for our conversation about anthology series on our next episode, which should be out on Tuesday, September 12th. 
filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, uh, as well as a list of direct links to all of the titles we discuss on each episode. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcap.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore. Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can find the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions on various platforms. Do give us a follow. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>